0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London today, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. India's pharmaceutical sector produces one-fifth of the world's generic drug supply, thanks to rock-bottom prices. But concerns about quality control and corner-cutting continue to beset the industry. And in 2020 and 2021, one single story dominated the world's news. Here's a hint. It concerned a contagious virus with a spike protein. What was the dominant story in 2022? Keep listening, and you'll find out. But first... This week, a court in Iran sentenced Faiza Hashmi, a women's rights activist, to five years in prison. Daughter of the former Iranian president, Akbar Hashmi Rafsanjani, she was convicted of propaganda against the system, a crime dreamt up by the ideologues of Tehran That's just one of a number of high-profile prosecutions. From footballers to poets, no one has been immune from a nationwide crackdown on dissent in the country. Over three months of repression, executions, and mass roundups have cowed protesters demanding regime change. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who has ruled the Islamic Republic for more than three decades, looks to be back in firm control. But while demonstrations have subsided, the regime can't yet proclaim victory.
1: women led protests in Iran began in September after a young Kurdish girl, Masa Amini, died in detention. She'd been taken there for wearing what the authorities had called a bad hijab. And since then, protests at her death have really spread like wildfire across the country. People were saying not just they wanted an end to the veil, but they wanted an end to the Islamic Republic
0: Nicholas Pelham is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist.
1: The regime has taken time to suppress the protests, but in many ways it it does seem to have done that, really through cracking down very hard on any sign of dissent. It's locked up 20,000 of its own citizens. Many have been sent to torture chambers. Over 100 have been sentenced to death. But for all that, I think it's still too soon to say that the regime has won. They probably have seized the initiative but the anger remains as potent on the streets as ever. So
0: the world saw footage of these very brave protesters in late last year. What is the state of the protest movement now? How do the streets of Tehran look today?
1: You know, the streets of Tehran and the country look really very different. Across the country, they're perhaps at most two or three protests a day when there had been scores. Digital communication is heavily restricted. University campuses and high schools, which had been the dynamo of dissent, are being zealously policed by security companies. There are surveillance cameras everywhere. And, you know, people had said that this time, unlike previous bouts of repression, they wouldn't leave the country. But now we are starting to see many Iranians trying to get out. So
0: this all sounds like a win for the regime, no?
1: Yes, I think ostensibly that is how it looks. The supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who's 83 and a cancer survivor, at the start of these protests, he'd really held back. You hadn't seen much of him now. He's looking energized. He's giving sermon after sermon to his core constituents. He's rallying hundreds of clerics and loyalist women to hear his sermons. And he's saying that anybody who defies his Islamic revolution is a traitor. And that carries with it the threat of execution. So he's looking stronger. The protesters are looking weaker. But again, he may have won the battle, but he's far from winning the war. So tell us a bit more about that. It looks
0: like the regime is winning. What are we not seeing?
1: We're not seeing the population of Iran accepting the regime's upper hand at the moment as a fait accompli. The defiance of many remains largely unchanged. It's true that gender segregation is back in many university canteens, but male and female students are bringing their own packed lunches to college and eating on the grass together. Many women are still refusing to put on the veil. There are instances of people shouting back at plainclothes police. And I think Most tellingly, perhaps, although executions have ramped up after fairly cursory trials, you're now starting to see protesters march on the prisons where the executions are due to take place. Two protesters were hanged over the weekend for allegedly killing a member of the security forces. They were both said to have been tortured into making confessions. And that really has ignited the anger of Iranians. — On Monday, hundreds of protesters marched on Raja Shahab prison in the city of Karaj, not far from Tehran, where the regime was preparing to put two more young men to the gallows who'd been sentenced to death after sham trials. They began chanting, until the mullahs are buried, this homeland is not a homeland. Police opened fire on the crowds. The crowds did disperse, but the executions themselves were delayed. And so I think protesters saw that as a sign that still their voice mattered. So clearly, Iranians are still upset
0: with the regime. How is the regime doing? Is it sticking together under this pressure?
1: I think it's important that the Supreme Leader himself is calling for his supporters to unite. So, Clearly, he doesn't feel that perhaps they are as united as they should be. There are signs of divisions within the upper ranks. Many of the regime stalwarts with strong ties to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the regime's Praetorian Guard, don't seem to be anything like as committed as he is to an iron fist. I think they would like to see a use of politics as well as security in handling the protests. Some have called for greater accommodation with the protesters. Others have said that perhaps they should consider a relaxation of the mandatory veil. You've had former presidents who've cautioned against responding with an iron fist. And again, when you look at the foot soldiers, it seems that some of them are beginning to look tired. So just as there seems to be a degree of confusion about what protesters do next, I think the same is also true for the regime. They're not really all singing from the same hymn sheet. So
0: do you think the regime might reach some sort of accommodation with the protesters with their demands?
1: That seems to be what some within the regime itself are calling for. But if you listen to the supreme leader, to Ali Khamenei himself, he's really not giving any sign of this at all. He's still insisting that the veil should be mandatory and enforced. He's saying perhaps that the messaging could be improved. But, you know, if you look back at what is now his... 33-year rule, it's really very hard to see any sign of him ever climbing down of compromise. I think he fears any concession would be interpreted as a sign of weakness. And so I think that does kind of beg the question as to what happens if the executions continue to arouse popular anger. Are they going to be creating martyrs for the protest movement? And certainly it's done nothing to improve Iran's image in the international communities. Iran is looking, in the west at least, and in other countries as well, somewhat toxic. And the UN and various world leaders have condemned Mr. Khamenei for the deaths. How is the
0: country's economy faring in light of all of this? Uh,
1: poorly. The Iranian real has lost 50% of its value against the dollar since Mr. Khamenei's President, Ibrahim Rais, took office in August last year. As inflation spirals, many are turning to bartering. There are apps which are kind of allowing people to sell their clothes in exchange for meat. Organized strikes have subsided for now, but Iranians trying to travel through the country are struggling to find tickets for normally plentiful planes and trains and buses. So for all the authorities claim to have reestablished normality, Iran doesn't feel particularly normal at the moment.
0: Short of caving into to the protesters' demands, which seems unlikely, is there anything the regime can do to restore some sort of normalcy, to go back to the status quo
1: ante? There are some in the regime who would like to return to the nuclear deal with the UN and other global powers. But again, it's really hard to see how, at the moment, Western powers can engage with a regime which is under pressure at home and which has chased many of its own population out of the country and are putting pressure on Western governments not to engage. On Tuesday, the head of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said that the bloc would extend economic sanctions against Iran for supporting the Russian war in Ukraine.
2: We will keep the pressure on the Kremlin for as long as it takes with a biting sanctions regime. We will extend these sanctions to those who militarily support Russia's war, (coughs) such as Belarus or Iran. And we will be coming forward with-
1: And these follow a slew of fresh penalties announced by the Biden administration last week, which have targeted Iran's aviation and defense sector. So for now, this isn't a regime that appears to have that many options except for oppression, if it's really not going to go down the road of trying to establish a new political contract with its population. It's under financial pressure. It's subsidizing petrol prices to an enormous degree because of the decline in the real. Petrol sells to something like five cents a litre now. So given the mounting economic travels, it's hard to see how the authorities are going to maintain those subsidies. And if you see another round of price hikes, particularly of petrol, I think you can expect unrest to flare again once more.
0: All right. Nick, thanks very much for your time today.
1: Thank you, John. Always a
0: pleasure.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. India's
0: drug makers like to call themselves the world's pharmacy. Some 10,000 factories there produce nearly $50 billion worth of drugs a year. They account for 20% of the world's generic drug supply by value. But a quality control scandal is rocking this indispensable industry and threatens to leave lasting damage to India's reputation for pharmaceutical manufacturing.
2: The scandal that has come up in the India pharma industry is that two different companies, Marion Biotech and Maiden Pharmaceuticals, made cough syrups that were exported to foreign countries, and both of them have been implicated in the death of numerous children.
0: Tom Easton is our South Asia business correspondent.
2: In the case of Gambia, 70 children have apparently died, and in the case of Uzbekistan, 18 have allegedly died after ingesting this syrup. There's been No absolute legal determination in either of these cases. However, in Gambia, a parliamentary commission has issued an absolutely scathing report linking the cough syrup to the fatalities. And in Uzbekistan, the government has issued a statement also linking the fatalities to the cough syrup.
0: That's really grim, Tom. Tell us about the companies that that made these medicines.
2: Well, they're both small companies in a really huge indian generic drug manufacturing industry the broader problem is the entire industry pharma system has had many of these issues in the past in fact there have been five different cases over past decades implicating different indian companies
0: what sort of quality control measures are there in india to prevent this kind of thing from happening
2: well there have been many many efforts in parliament and in state governments Uh, to come to grips with quality issues in the Indian industry. And they would argue, in many of the companies, that the steps that were taken have been adequate. The most important quality control probably has been exports. And that has brought in European and American regulators into the Indian system to check drugs, both in the process of being manufactured and after they've been shipped. But in 2022 alone, Four different Indian companies have been issued what's called import alerts by the FDA in the United States. And what import alerts means is that shipments of drugs can be blocked without inspecting the physical shipments themselves.
0: Now, as for the companies that made the medicines that you mentioned in the opening, the ones that, that were implicated in, in deaths in Gambia and, and Uzbekistan, what have their responses been to the accusations?
2: Well, we tried to call them up multiple times. We tried to email... Email links, in one case, were severed. In no cases were the phone calls returned. In one case, the company has denied any connection and has said that they're appalled. One of the executives did grant an interview to an Indian newspaper where he said he was appalled by what happened and and shocked. In the other case, there just hasn't been a comment. A report has been issued in India from one of the companies that said trial batches of the problematic syrup that's been tested and found to be okay, but that really isn't determinative about what was shipped. So, you know, we, we are kind of lost in this process. There has not been any firm investigation yet. There has not been any conclusive statements. The government initially seemed to move very, very slowly, but has now indicated that it will start doing more thorough inspections of both of these firms. Neither of these firms have sold the particular cost in India. That may have slowed things down. And, you know, it is really tragic to say this, but the fact is that these products were shipped to smaller countries that may not have attracted the same attention as if there was some scandalous grouping of fatalities in Western Europe and America. And that, too, may have delayed having the spotlight really shown on the industry. But over time, there's been more and more attention. And I think many, many people in India have been really outraged and are demanding the government to take a very, very close look at not only these firms, but the overall industry.
0: And tell us briefly, if you can, about the industry itself. How big is it? How important is it? And what has its reaction been to these incidents?
2: The Indian generic industry is responsible for about 40% of all the generic drugs in America, about 20% of the generic drugs in the world, 3,000 firms. They produce about $50 billion worth of drugs a year through 10,000 factories. So this is a very, very large, very sophisticated industry. And if you want to praise the industry, it's made drugs far more affordable all over the world. That matters for America, and it matters in Africa, and it matters everywhere else. On the other hand, the process of having 10,000 factories engaged in producing very, very sensitive products is challenging at the least. There have been some very, very scathing books that have been issued on the subject. There's a new one, The Truth Pill, by a former drug executive and a lawyer in India that looks at all the different elements of the drug industry, from the production to the regulation to the distribution, and found many, many areas wanting. And so if we're going to have a truly global drug industry. We're going to have to have another system, I think, that can provide the confidence that the world needs. The medicines themselves are good. And ironically, it's in India's interest to be particularly aggressive. Beyond fatalities, there are other problems too. The biggest other problem, which they really go into in this book, is that you may have medicines that are ineffective. In other words, they don't kill people, they don't generate tragedies, headlines, but you may not be getting the active ingredient that you're supposed to be getting. These are just other things that not only India, but the world has to come together in inspecting and ensuring adequacy.
0: Tom, you visited various Indian pharmaceutical plants during your time as a reporter there.
2: What have you found? What is your impression? When you visit these plants, and I I want to be clear, I haven't visited plants from these two companies, but I have visited plants from companies that have been sanctioned by the FDA. And when you visit one of these plants, you see that there are vacuums everywhere, you see that people wear hairnets, but that's not enough to really see if there's lack of sterilization at the molecular level there needs to be for the safe production of pharmaceutical products. This is a very, very difficult process. And whether you can do it for 10,000 factories spread out all over a country, where many of these factors are coming from overseas, is questionable. We need to create a system that provides not only confidence for the users, but actually fear and concern from all the producers as well, that if there is a problem, it will be detected. The competition in generic is almost exclusively a competition over price. You sell your generic by producing it at the lowest possible price, rather than having a brand that people trust. And that puts enormous pressure on the inspection and certification process to be thorough.
0: All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us
2: today. Thank you for having me on. It's really a pleasure. In
0: 2020 and 2021, a single story dominated news
3: coverage. For the first time, there are more new cases of coronavirus being reported outside China than within. We have a new name for the coronavirus. The World Health Organization has officially called it COVID-19. The great shutdown of 2020 is underway. In
0: 2022, it was, well, a very different story.
3: For the past few years, we've been doing an annual review of the world's most read news stories. And so to do this, we work with Chartbeat, who are a U.S.-based company that provide website traffic and analytics data for about 7,000 newsrooms across the world.
0: James Francham is a data journalist with The Economist.
3: And so we combed through ChartBeats data and visualized 32 big news events of the year. And together, there were 6.5 million articles written about these events, and they attracted a total of one billion hours of reader's time. The war in Ukraine accounted for about one quarter of total reading time last year. That's extraordinary. How did it compare to other events? Doing a like-for-like comparison is quite tricky, but stories about the war in Ukraine were roughly similar share to the coronavirus pandemic share of news stories in 2021. And that's a subject which broadly affected people's day-to-day lives much more. But on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th last year, readership peaked at 6.5 million hours of readers' time. So that's quite a chunk. And what I'd say is that the daily peak surpasses the other big news stories of the year by some way. So when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars, that attracted 3 million hours of readers' time on 28th of March. And when Queen Elizabeth died in early September, that received 2.1 million hours of readers' time. So of course, all those eyes glued to screens was not going to continue at such high levels. Readership for stories about Ukraine war has averaged about 500,000 hours per day since May. But to give you a sense of context, that's still about the same amount of readership for Argentina's nail-biting victory against France in the Men's World Cup in late December.
0: And what are the other stories that readers focused on this year?
3: Among the events that we looked at, I would say China wasn't far from the news. So the Winter Olympic Games, which was hosted by China in February, briefly became prominent, particularly when Eileen Gu, an American-born Chinese skier, won a dramatic gold medal in the Free Skier Big Air event, and that was pretty stunning. And as Xi Jinping cemented his place in history alongside Mao Zedong, that was really a big news event. So stories about China as a whole attracted 70 million hours of readers' time last year, the eighth most read subject. Also, one thing to mention is the protests against the oppressive race regime in Iran. The protests were the biggest since the revolution in the late 70s. And since the death of Masha Amini, a Kurdish woman at the hands of the morality police on September the 16th, news about the country consumed 16 million hours of readers' time. But I would say, as ever, political events were pretty significant last year too. So Britain had a particularly turbulent year. News about the country's ever-changing roster of prime ministers was the fifth most read event of the year, so getting about 100 million hours of readership. But the political tumult in Britain looks quite quaint, I think, when set against the rough and tumble of American politics. The US midterm elections were the second most subject of the year with a total of 143 million hours of readership, which is about half the total of the Ukraine war. And although he has not been president for nearly two years, Donald Trump still attracted 100 million hours of readers time, which is just 25% less than the sitting president, Joe Biden.
0: And James, I can't help noticing that one thing you didn't mention there is what you did mention earlier is the top topic of 2021, and that's COVID. Where is that story these days? Is it just old news?
3: I would say at the beginning of the year, it was really in readers' minds, particularly around fears of the COVID Omicron variant. So that dominated the news during the beginning of the year, peaking at 800,000 hours of readers' time on January the 6th. But I would say also the deaths last year were probably at similar levels to 2020. But most of the world now is kind of living with COVID. So it's not, as it were, news. But tangentially, news for China peaked at 500,000 hours in mid-November as protests erupted about the COVID restrictions there. And so there's there's obviously much interest in China's surprising U-turn to reverse all COVID restrictions and reopen the country to foreigners. But I guess I would say that unless a, a nasty new variant comes along, let's call it, say, COVID-23, then I don't think we'd expect that it will be big news this year.
0: And let me press you at the end for, for other predictions. Do you think interest in the war in Ukraine will sustain as it grinds on? And if not, what, what else do you think might be a big story this year?
3: It's a question of what happens and how quickly in Ukraine. And so the invasion obviously was so remarkable, kind of dragging Europe back to a time that many people thought had long since passed. There was impossible not to be engrossed by Russia's invasion. And the world was obviously completely shocked. And now obviously with the war in a kind of phase of attrition, it's settled into kind of expected pattern of behaviour. Perhaps if there are peace talks possibly towards the end of this year, or at the other end of the spectrum, a further escalation of military force. That would obviously draw readers in. In terms of other news stories, I suspect more of the same of what we've seen, political turmoil, dealing with inflation, fears around recession, and so on. And obviously, there are all the unknown unknowns that might happen. An escalation of force between China and Taiwan would be one big news event, but hopefully that doesn't come to pass. So hopefully it's more a case of how we deal with the current problems that the world has, inflation, climate change, global integration. Those will be big news stories in 2023.
0: All right, James, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure.